Hi friends, this is episode 58 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey everybody, I'm so excited to be back with you. We start a brand new series in this episode. A lot of new things going on at the Bible Lab. First of all, this new series is on the book of Galatians. It's called What God Wants, and it will completely transform your view of who God is. His character is just so much more loving than we ever possibly imagined. So as we take a look at what God wants, I guarantee you are going to have a new picture and a broader picture of who God is. Like I said, lots of new things. It's exciting. Many of you know that now the Bible Lab is part of Faith for Today, a historic broadcast ministry that's helped so many people understand who God is and really goes out into the world to help people understand that church, religion, spirituality, and God himself are not what you think he is. He's so much greater. He's so much more loving and so much more amazing than most people have ever imagined in their life. So exciting things are coming up. One of the exciting things is that here in a matter of weeks, we have a brand new video broadcast series coming out. It'll be on all different channels and all different venues that you can watch. So make sure you're paying attention. We're going to let you know exactly where you can watch And probably one of the easiest places that you can find that out is going to our website, thebiblelab.com, where we want to invite you today to make sure you go there, get your study guide for What God Wants, Episode 1, and follow along so you too can be part of this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to The Bible Lab. Awesome. Here we go. Number one, I imagine that someone sitting near me has been arrested before. (laughs) Oh, some of you are a little quick on that one. I am seeing way too many yes cards. (laughs) I'm seeing about 20% yes. Oh, and then then I'm seeing about about another 20% maybes. What a rowdy crew. That's like 40% of this place. Only 60% of you are safe to sit by. Wow. Have we got some stories in this group? Number two. I'm just going to move on. Number two. My parents were more strict with me than today's parents are with their kids. Okay, I'm seeing a sea of green. It looks like 95% yes. And I heard someone go, yes, when they put it up. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I'm seeing about 2.5% no and 2.5% maybe. And a lot of people waving their cards. Uh, Yes. Oh, my word. So so yeah, you were raised a lot stricter than today's snowflake parents um, (laughs) raised their kids. All right. Have you heard the, new, the, new, the newest term, lawnmower parent? Have you heard that one? It was helicopter parent a generation ago, and now it's lawnmower parent. Now, they're not hovering over the kids. They're out in front of the kids mowing the lawn to make sure that their kids are never in any situation that's not perfectly groomed, right? <laughs> yes. For those of you who are young parents, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Number three. 
I have always been quite mature for my age. <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> Only half of you are saying yes. <laughs> the rest of you jokesters in here are no's and maybes. It looked like the no's had the maybes by maybe 30% no and 20% maybes. Yeah, I'm just glad I didn't have to raise a card. You guys already know. <laughs> People have asked me, uh, so when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I haven't grown up yet. I don't know. I number, three, uh, number four, I have a guardian angel who helps me determine right from wrong. The guardian angel who helps me determine right from wrong. I'm seeing a majority of yes. It looks like 75% yes. And, wow, okay, 75% yes. And then a split, an even split between the no's and the maybes. Okay, so many of you are picturing the, the, little, the little white guy on one shoulder, <laughs> little red guy with the pitchfork on the other shoulder. You're trying to decide which way to go. Many of you, um, when you're growing up, your parents would tell you, you know, listen for the still small voice. It's going to tell you what to do. It's your guardian angel. And it's not biblical. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about that later on. Because we're going to talk about guardians. We're going to talk about, uh, uh, about what the Bible says about what is a guardian and what has shaped you what's helped you through your maturity process. And even though some of us are not socially mature, we're all trying to become spiritually mature. And through the process, what has God set up so that you do have a guardian who helps you know right from wrong and that helps you during the tough development stage from immaturity to maturity in spiritual, in spiritual terms. So we're going to talk about that quite a bit today. Number five, after Christ's sacrifice, keeping the law has no effect on your salvation. Yes, this is the groaner. I was expecting this to be the groaner amongst a bunch of Seventh-day Adventists. Yes, so I am seeing, wow, this is, this is all over the place. Okay, so I see about 50% no, and I saw 30% yes, and about 20% maybe. We are all over the place on this. And the problem is... In our development of, here's the big word. The big word of the day is soteriology, which means how are you saved, okay? It's the study of how are you saved, soteriology. Um, in our understanding of soteriology, as Seventh-day Adventists, we have been on a journey. Many of you grew up, like me, in the 70s and 80s, to where the law and right behavior was emphasized at church. And what's happened is that much like stretching a rubber band as far as it can go to its limit, what's happened is there's been a theological snap. And now we've swung to the other side saying grace alone, grace alone, grace alone. It's not by works lest any man boast. And we're quoting those texts now. And because of that, now we're all split. So, does the law have any place in your salvation? You say yes, but many of you just voted no. Okay. So, we are all over the place. And because of that, even our church itself, as a body worldwide, 
splits over this topic. What's important, what's not important. I even had someone tell me uh, just this week that when they, uh, years ago, when they moved here instead of moving to a different place, all the people told her, oh, you're moving to Babylon. <laughs> and some of you are shaking your head. You heard that too. You were told going to Loma Linda, now you're going to Babylon. I heard the stories as a kid growing up. You guys are horrible. <laughs> I can't believe I'm spending time with you. Guilt by association alone. So for many of you, you've had to live through the transition, the theological transition of it's very important. Your behavior in, in keeping the law is paramount to being saved. And some of you have grown up saying, boy, I never grew up in that environment. We have a lot of young people here who are saying, wow, what a horrible world that must have been to live in. But you're dealing with something else because you don't know what you believe. Because the pendulum swung so far that it wasn't about what you believe, it's just you're saved by grace. And because of that, we have people all over the place theologically not knowing what does God want. What does God want? And so we're going to spend five weeks, five sessions, going through what Paul told the Galatians that God wants. And in doing so, it's going to be really painful. It's going to be really hard because some of our cherished beliefs we're going to have to give up and some of the things that we were against before we're going to have to accept. Galatians might be one of the toughest letters of Paul that our denomination has to read through. Because when you just take what it says, not the plain reading of Scripture, but the educated reading of Scripture, what do these words mean to the original hearers in context and in the culture of the people, what was being explained to the people that God wants? And in doing so, it's, it's going to shake us up a bit. Are you guys okay with that? Because it's going to shake us up a bit. Some people are going to say some things during these five weeks that you absolutely disagree with. You know what? That's okay. Because you're going to say something that they absolutely disagree with, okay? But as a mature community, we allow a wide variance of thought and then ultimately allow Scripture to be the filter with which we decide what is truth, okay? So as we go through this, it's going to be challenging, but I think this has the chance of being one of the most moving and growing experiences for us in all the three years that we've had the Bible app. And so put your big boy pants on, because here we go. To get our minds ready for it, I want to ask you a question. When you were young, what did your parents do to try to keep you out of trouble? What forms of discipline, supervision, or restrictions did they place on you? All right, we're going to start over here. Raise a question or comment card if you'd like to share. Anesio. Okay. Okay. I know that everybody here had a different kind of education, parents. Yeah. I had a privilege to have a fantastic mother. From my mother's side, I have a... From my father's side, I have <laughs> But... My mother's side, for sure, thinking now, she was a gospel living hmm. in person. Yeah. And my father, everything, everything my mother did with discipline was right, fair, and good. Hmm. My father always 
unfair hmm. and bad. Wow. Thanks God my mother's one. And I very grateful hmm. for the mother that I had. Wow. That's interesting. How, how many of you kind of agree with that? Yeah, your parents, one felt fair and the other felt unfair. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of you are nodding your head. Some of you are raising a yes card. Back here, Sharon. Um, I know that I got punished a lot more than my sister did, who was six years younger. Yeah, your sister told me the same thing about her. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> You haven't met my sister. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you caught me. <laughs> my sister told me she, she saw what I got in trouble for and made sure she didn't do it. <laughs> um, I think my parents meant well. I know they meant well. Yeah. They were very God-fearing parents. My mother mm. was a disciplinarian, mm. and she spanked me mm -hmm. with her open hand, no less. Mm. <laughs> I also, because that was the way I brought up, I spanked my boys. Mm -hmm. They don't spank their, their children. Mm -hmm. Because now we know there are other ways mm -hmm. that are more productive. Right, now the children spank the parents. I've seen it, yeah. <laughs> my older son has twin sons who are 16. And they are a delight. That's I have awesome. taken them different places. Yeah. I would take them anywhere. Yeah. They have been brought up well, other than they don't know the Lord. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But they are not spanked. There's yeah. a better way to go. Wow. If only my generation's parents knew that. I'm not going to embarrass my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say I know a phrase spare the rod, spoil the child. Anybody else have that phrase said in your uh, house, Gordon? Yeah, we, we went through a lot of rods. Um, <laughs> back here, blue mic. I don't remember discipline as a, a black or white thing. I think uh, looking back, there was yeah. natural consequences, and then there was guilt pushed onto that. Uh, <laughs> For instance, there was a time I was supposed to stay home and I rode my bike over to my friend's house and in the process, my toe got somehow stuck in the front spokes and the bike flipped and I oh. landed, you know, face planted on the, oh on the road. Some stranger had to, I just laid there and screamed because <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Some stranger came and got me. It wasn't until a few months after that that my mom said, you remember you were supposed to be at home <laughs> and that's what happened. And, uh, so Your guardian angel was home. Where were you? Yeah, yeah. that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But when I was little, uh, I remember getting spanked for things. But that was then. That was the natural consequence. Yes, yes. But as you get older, you know, you live with those natural consequences. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Last comment. Uh, purple Mike. When I was in high school, uh, well, a senior, um, my mom found out that me and my sister and my cousins went to the movies, and that was like a no. I mean, yeah. that was a, the sin, the yeah. sin. So she, uh, she sent me abroad. She sent me to a very conservative school for a whole year. Oh. I hated it. <laughs> um, and um, being a PK, I was like, why? Why do I have to be in this? What, what's so wrong about it? I couldn't understand then, and I still don't. But her intentions were very like 
cut to the source. Like yeah. I thought, you know, it was it was interesting that back then that was the norm. It's like cut away whatever is yeah. happening. Yeah. So you choose better. Yeah. Or you do better. Or um, yeah. Instead of having a conversation as to about it. So yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Norelli. That's exactly where we're going in, in this text as well, because the Galatians were struggling with the exact same thing that many people during my parents' generation and my generation had to struggle with. What are the absolutes? Remember growing up, some of you, it's black and white. It's either black or white. It's absolute. God is about, God is an absolute God. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. If there's any gray area in it, well, it's got some black in it. It's bad. Don't do it. And so we avoided gray areas growing up. Many of you agree with this. You're like, yeah, I remember. Everything's just cut and dry. And if there was anything about it that would be considered bad in any way by association, we just cut it out of our lives. We just didn't do it. Now, it's okay to bring the VHS tape home, but you couldn't go to the big screen. There's something about that big screen in the area. But when it's baptized through that VHS process, the VHS stands for very Holy Spirit. And <laughs> put it on your home television. Your guardian angel will sit and eat popcorn with you. <laughs> Sounds like Whoppers to me. We, we did some really unique things because of association. We avoided certain styles of music and musical instruments. Um, some places still do. Um, we avoided certain things during the worship hour. Um, we avoided going to certain places. And in some ways, when I went to uh, the Holy Land uh, in, in Jerusalem, experienced a couple of Sabbaths there in Israel. For those of you who've gone, you, you can relate. There is something so tangibly special about how they, they celebrate the Sabbath. And in many ways, as a Sabbatarian myself, I felt like I had lost some things, some specialness about the tradition of Sabbath. And I came home from that realizing I need to, with my boys, help them understand this beautiful tradition of Sabbath in a different way instead of worrying about the do's and don'ts, to really celebrate the Sabbath in, in the way that I saw celebrated in Jerusalem. And in that way, um, it, it, it changed even my perspective of something that many people see as a law. To me, I saw it as a celebration, as a beautiful family tradition. So in looking at this, I want you to think about the challenges that many of you grew up in as far as where does the law sit? What is its place? What is, it, what is its role? And as you read what the Galatians were going through, I, I think you're going to see a lot of things that relate with your experience, with your growth experience. And what Paul was trying to express through the inspired word of God to these people who were struggling with the law. Before I read this section that's on your study guide, I want you to understand something. There is a group of uh, church leadership, 
theologians call them Judaizers, basically Jewish people who are really trying to help the new Christian converts understand the connection to Judaism, because the majority of converts in Galatia were Gentile. They were not Jews. And so as these non-Jews were coming in, in much the same way, if you think your denomination is not that different from some of the other Christian denominations, you just haven't hung out with other people from other denominations. Because the moment you start dating someone from a different denomination, some of you young people understand what I'm talking about, you realize just how weird you are. <laughs> All the unique cultural things that have become integral to you and something you, would, you just assume because you grew up in this, you just assume that the rest of the world does this. All other Christians would understand and prioritize these things that have become integral into our culture. It's getting easier to become a vegetarian because Hollywood and hip society has said it's really cool to do that now. But those of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s, you knew people tried to cure us of vegetarianism, <laughs> but you haven't had my brisket. <laughs> Great, thank you. Um, but as we read this, I want you to understand, in church they were trying to figure out how to absorb these Gentiles, these non-Jews, into this new faith. It's basically Judaism that said the Messiah came, and that's what made them Christians. It was just basically Jews that said, look, we have proof the Messiah came, and it was Jesus. And those people were culturally, deeply religiously Jewish. And because of that, all the things that were natural and normal and absolutely non-negotiable were being questioned by the group of outsiders who were coming in and saying, great, we want to be part of this group too. This is amazing. We love this picture of God. And in doing so, they upset the church because the church had to ask, what is non-negotiable? And the church was saying, if you want to be in right relationship with God, the law is paramount. And if you don't prioritize the law, and if you don't get circumcised, you're not part of us. This is the environment in which Paul came in. And he tells them in Galatians 3, verse 23, through chapter 4, verse 7. That's the section we're going to look at today. New Living Translation reads, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that a way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. 
They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We, are, uh, we were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Now I'm going to do something a little differently than what we typically do. I typically will ask for a question right now, but I'm going to go through some information. I want you to understand, I bold-faced some words in this text. You noticed that. I'm going to go through those bold-faced words really quickly, and then we're going to ask questions afterwards, okay, and make comments afterwards. So you will have time, but I want to go through this so that as we're speaking, we do go through the filter of Scripture and fully understand what's being said here. Is that, is that okay? Good, because I was going to do it anyways. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> Sorry. Verse 23. So we have this word, you were placed under guard. So before the way of faith in Christ was available to us. In other words, before Jesus came and died on the cross. Up until that time, everything about salvation was prophecy, something that was going to happen. Everything was about hope. Paul says, now we live in a different time. We don't live in a time of hope. We now live in a time of remembrance. Now we look back and we can remember Christ died for our sins. We look back, it's, it's part of history. Everything before Jesus died on the cross was future, future hope. And everything now to the Galatians is history. It's a done deal. You can read about it in, in even the enemy's history books about this guy named Jesus who died on the cross and did all this magical stuff and taught. So he says, now that we live in a different era, now we live in, in, in a time that is not before this faith in Christ. Now it's after. It says, during that time before the cross, we were placed under guard by the law. Now this phrase, you have to understand, it's right here in your study guide. I have it there in the Greek for you. This word placed under guard means, quote, to keep inward under lock and key. You're placed inside and locked up with lock and key. The law was a jailer, in other words, who held in custody those who were subjected to sin in order that they should not escape the consciousness of their sin and the liability to punishment. In other words, the law served a purpose. When you broke it, you knew. All right, <laughs> open the cell. I'm in jail. Kind of like if you're playing hockey and you do a bad check and the ref says, up oh, into the box, you know you got to go in the box. You got to serve your time. So the law served as the referee saying, up, oh, you broke the lock. Get in, get in there. You're locked up. You can't play right now. Turn over to the back of the study guide, verse 24. When it talks about guardian in verse 24, it says the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us we, uh, until we could be made right with God through faith. 
what does guardian mean? Guardian's kind of a, it's, it's a good word choice. The challenge is you don't truly understand because we don't live in the same social construct as the Greeks, uh, the Greco-Roman world. The, the word guardian here, pedagogos, we get uh, pedagogue, our word today, pedagogue, uh, schoolmaster, uh, we use that word today. But there was no such thing as what we would see a pedagogue today. What a pedagogue was during the time of the Greeks was something completely different. It was a slave that your rich family would hire. And get this, some of you think that you were uh, watched over very strictly by your parents. Take a look at what the Romans would do. This word denoted a slave employed in Greek and Roman families who had general charge over a boy in the years from about 6 till 16. He watched over his outward behavior and took charge over him whenever he went from home, as for instance, to school. The slave was entrusted with the moral supervision of the child. Can any of you imagine having this guardian follow you every time you leave the house. Talk about a tattletale. Some of you had big brothers or sisters or little brothers and sisters that played this role in your life. But can you imagine this was part of society? Between the age of 6 and 16, you would have someone go with you every time you left the house to make sure that your behavior was not out of line. And here it said, in verse 24, that the law was our guardian until Christ came. Verse 26, there's a word used there, children. The word is used in context for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, many of you would think of that as a, a term saying you're immature, you're, you're younger. But this word that's used is actually huios. And huios is not immature children. The word signifies someone of full age. Under law, the individual was in his minority or was a minor and under a guardian. Now, under grace, he has attained his majority or his maturity, having outgrown the surveillance of his former guardian. So what it says here in verse 26 is that you are now adult children of God or mature children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then the word in 29, true children of Abraham. This was very important to the Jews. The Greek word is sperma. I can't think of an English word that relates to that. <laughs> but basically, it's translated in your Bible as the word seed. The Judaizers taught that by becoming subjects of the Mosaic law, the Galatian Gentiles would become the seed or progeny of Abraham. But Paul says here that the privilege comes to one by faith in Christ. It's not by keeping the law and becoming circumcised that you become part of Abraham's seed, but it's truly faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah that makes you the seed. We're going to see uh, sometime later, and if you want to read, Romans chapter 4 actually wrestles with this. Paul uh, writes Romans after Galatians, so many people look at Galatians as a rough draft of Romans. And in Romans chapter 4, he actually goes through and says, when was Abraham uh, counted as righteous? Was it before or after he was circumcised? And he goes back and you look, and you can look today. You realize in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham's considered righteous. Uh-oh. It's not until chapter 17 that he's circumcised. 
And Paul wrestles with that and says, look, this is unnecessary because if you're pointing back to Abraham, God counted his faith as his righteousness. So why would the Gentiles not be allowed the same privilege? Their faith counts them as righteous. And then if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, we come back to the word children. And I want to make sure you understand the difference here because in 4, verse 1, when Paul says, think of it this way, if a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up. This word is different than children before. Young children is nepios, which is a compound word. I love this. Compound word that means one that does not speak. <laughs> any, of, any of you have this, uh, this word, this phrase that, that we go, children are to be seen and not... Oh, you've heard of that one, yes. <laughs> Our parents read the same book. Great. That's what young children were in the Greco-Roman society as well. Seen and not heard. You don't speak. You're young children. And then in verse 5, last word of 6 I want to bring to you is the, the phrase, buy freedom. And in verse 5, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. That word, buy freedom, in Greek, exaggerize means to buy out of the slave market. You're on the slave market, and he literally is buying you off the slave block and bringing you back in. So now that you see these six words or phrases here, now I want to open it up. I want to ask you, after exploring these words a little deeper, how does this affect your view of what God wants? Because Paul seems to say that law really does not have a place right here. So from these words, what are you seeing that's different from what you thought of before? Who has the red mic? Red mic. Yes, go ahead. Um, I'm thinking about this term guardian in relationship to keeping people out of trouble. And it wasn't so much my parents, because I was a good girl, but it, of course. Was the, yeah. it was the faculty at boarding academy and at boarding college in that if we were in an auditorium like this for chapel they want the guardians had to keep us out of trouble so the boys were on that on side, side. <laughs> the girls were on this side right. right it was only once a week that you could eat with someone of the opposite sex in the cafeteria and you didn't get to choose who that was well occasionally wow what a liberal school and, and then they were, you know, they were really trying to keep us out of trouble. And then when we got to college at Andrews University, my husband and I were actually engaged later on our junior year, but still we could not go to town without a guardian, which they called chaperone. Uh, and then after you got married, you call it mother-in-law. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, I think that's why... <laughs> Did I say that out loud? I, I kind of think that's why I've observed that young people of this generation get married later than people of our generation, because in our generation, that's the only way you could spend time wow. with a girl. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'd like to get to know you, so you want to get yeah. married? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> awesome. I love it. Green microphone. Olivia, go ahead. Yes. I was disciplined. I've said before, I grew up, I was born a depression baby. 
so uh, to, into a family of siblings that were teenagers. And I was the spoiled one. And given anything, if I just had to stamp my feet and have a tantrum and I'd have <laughs> anything I wanted. But the discipline, my mother was a disciplinarian. And I could still feel, even as a child, we had to go out in the backyard and get the apricot twig to be uh, on our legs. She used it on our legs. And, and my father was not involved at all because Satan had taken his life and made him the neighborhood drunk, the wino of the neighborhood. So my mother grew and raised her five children by herself as a disciplinarian. I, wanted, I said this because as I grew up and matured in the Lord, my mother did too because she introduced me to God at about five years of age and said, remember, God is watching you. So wherever I went, whenever I went, I always looked around because I knew he was watching. I didn't dare to do anything wrong because then I wondered what's going to happen to me if I do. But I did do some wrong things and nothing happened to me. <laughs> grew up knowing God's grace mm -hmm. and I praise the Lord for it because even with that I became a Christian and it wasn't until I was 40 years old because I became a Christian and as a teenager until I was 40 years old that I realized I carried so much guilt and that's what the law did for me and made me guilty of everything that I did because I knew God was watching and I did not know his grace. Yeah. But until I was 40 years old, I was at a pageant of Easter Sunday and Christ died on the cross. And I heard, uh, I got a liberation of, you don't have to carry all this guilt. Hmm. Everything was my fault and it affected my self-esteem to this time hmm. until classes like Bible Lab have helped me to mature and know that it's God's grace. And that works. Praise God. Thank you, Olivia. Thank you. Blue Mike. Blue Mike. Who has that? Randy. Go ahead. So we laugh all the time about um, all the things that we had to do growing up, uh, particularly in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And, and because we look at Galatians as uh, a topic of freedom, our freedom, we, ask, we have to ask ourselves, why then would we want to be subjugated by the law? Why is it so comfortable? And I've looked at other religions like Catholicism, and I think to myself, gosh, they have it great. They do something bad. The priest tells them to do five Hail Marys, and they're good. <laughs> they, they confess to the priest, and they're great. Mm -hmm. And they can go out and, and feel good about themselves. And I think it's the same thing with Seventh-day Adventists. And we look at the law, if we keep the law, what is the law? It's, it, it's a, it's a um, something that we, it's a contract. Mm -hmm. And what do contracts do? It limits our liability. Hmm. So if, if we think, okay, if I uh, just uh, stop everything, turn off the TV when the sun goes down on Friday, I've done my job. Hmm. But if you look at how limiting that is, 
if if I had to be married to my wife and all I had to do was take care of her financially, because it says for richer or poor, make sure that I'm there when she's sick, in sickness or in health, mm -hmm. and I just do it until she dies. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make me want to love her and do all the things for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. I've done my job. I haven't cheated on her, so yeah. I've done my job. I bring home the bacon. I've done my job. Mm -hmm. But does that make me a loving husband? Mm -hmm. So we're actually limiting ourselves by the law because, okay, we're doing, we're doing okay because we've kept the law, but have we really been loving like God is love? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I know a lot of people who are married, and I know a lot of people who are in love. And sometimes they're not the same couples. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? And some people stay together for their kids, and then the adult kids wonder what happened when they divorce after they're in college or on their own feet financially, whatever, and mom and dad split up, what happened? Uh, because they kept the law, they just didn't keep the love. And because of that, it falls apart. And, I, and so I think there's something in that that we really have to connect because what saves you is a relationship, right? It's not regulations, but it's relationship that saves you. So if that's the case, what's keeping you in the faith? Is it the regulations or is it the relationship? And that's why I think so many of us have gravitated to this conversation week after week is because we say, okay, this is helping the thing that's really helping my relationship with God is because I'm getting to know him and his character and you can't help but fall in love with God the more you get to know him. And I think that's what Paul's trying to say here as well. Red microphone, yes. Um, so I think it's a really complex um, topic, the yeah. relationship between the law and between grace. And I yeah. think it's a lot of it's about motivation, which you just sort of said. Yeah. Because from the outside, somebody, it could look the same to somebody else. Yeah. Um, if you're keeping it as you do early in your spiritual growth or, or like a kid who touches the stove and mm -hmm. doesn't realize that law don't touch it, you know, yeah. is there for their protection. Yeah. Um, it can seem really onerous. And I think the Sabbath's the same way, just like you were talking about. And as you grow in your relationship with Jesus, then it becomes something you do out of a res response of your love and growing relationship with him. And you don't see it yeah. as, um, as onerous. You, it's yeah. just becoming a natural response. But I, I just think it's a really complex thing. And um, yeah. it's hard to really understand. And um, But it's about the motivation. Thank you so much. I, d I love that. Because... It's absolutely true what you just said. The complexity of this. By the way, we're going to have a little bit of a cliffhanger because next week we're going to continue on in chapter 4 where Paul really wrestles with this. How do you live in your expectation of the role of regulation versus relationship? And so we're going to deal with this as we talk about Abraham's two sons. Because everyone's saying, are you a child of Abraham? Yes, I'm a child of Abraham. And so Paul is going to use in our next session a question. Okay, well, Abraham had two sons. Which one are you? So we're going to talk about that next week and really dig into the more complexities, as you say, of what it is. But you brought up something that I found really true in, in my life. Uh, can I be transparent with you? 
because some of you are new and you're like, well, you know, people are saying things very raw here. But let me just tell you this. It is because of my leadership position as a spiritual leader, as a pastor of church that actually kept me in relationship with God. Because there were times that I did not want to do the things God wanted me to do. There are things that definitely I wanted to do that were outside of relationship with God. But because of my calling and my position, it placed me in a place that I had to ask the question, if I do this and it's publicly known, will I keep my position? No. And so it was an easy decision to stay on the right path in relationship. So there were regulations that I kept simply because of my position. And many times I looked at that and I said, I think the Lord led me into Christian leadership so I would remain a Christian member. Because if I didn't have the responsibilities, there were times that I probably would have been irresponsible. And because of that, my position actually helped me, especially during my more immature years, to stay on the right path because of my calling, not because of my desire. Because if you're just leaning on your desire to do what is right, you're not always going to do right because your desire is not consistent, right? And so to be transparent, it is my position that actually protected my relationship more often than my relationship protected my position, if that makes sense. And so as I look at this, I think this is what Paul is trying to wrestle with as well as he talks about this guardian character. So in many ways, my profession, my calling into Christian leadership acted as my guardian, the one who would walk with me every moment I stepped out into public and say, I don't know, is that proper behavior because you're out in public. And so in many ways, the law has protected my reputation because it kept me from doing all the things that my heart desired. So in many ways, you as well, your life has been protected because there is this expectation that if you are a Christian, a Christ follower, you must be concerned about this, act this way, not do this, and definitely do that. And because of that, that's how Christianity protects your life from some of the bad decisions you typically would make without the regulations of church community. And so in that sense, you can't throw away the law because it acts as your guardian. But what Paul is trying to help you understand is how do you live like you're paid for? Because everyone he's talking to, their salvation has been paid for because it's after the cross. That's why he starts with this phrase about before and after faith in Christ was possible. And he's speaking even to us today in a time that is after you've been paid for. So how do you live like you've been paid for? I'm going to go on uh, in, in that in just a little bit as we close, but I want to make sure and get to Harvey's comment. <clears throat> I want to use a metaphor. Great. Someone learns to play the piano. You've got to learn the rules and follow the rules of music. Yeah. After 10,000 hours, you can improvise. Yes. Before that, you're just making mistakes. <laughs> or, I, I agree, you're either making mistakes 
or you're just a copy artist. Yeah. You're a cover yeah. artist trying to replicate the notes of someone before you. Yeah, but you're yeah. not the musician. Right, I, I, I agree. As we close, I, I want you to imagine a, a second metaphor, and thank you, Harvey. Let's imagine that I am really close friends with Warren Buffett. Why are you laughing? <laughs> I'm going to ignore your laughter, and I'm going to go on because this is really cool. Because uh, Warren Buffett contacts me. He says, look, I, I understand you have the Bible lab going there, 450 people gathering every Saturday to try to love their community more and to learn love from God himself. And because of that, I, I want to do something special for each member of the Bible lab. And so at this time, in comes 450 black suit clad, uh, sunglass wearing uh, men, and they each have a metal briefcase, and they come in. And all of them come in, and uh, they stand all around, because there's no space, because you guys have taken all the seats. And, <laughs> and I announce to you that Warren Buffett has this gift for every single one of you. Uh, there's a briefcase that holds $100 million. And each one of you here today, this is better than Oprah, you get $100 million, And you get $100 million, And you, sir, get $100 million. And everyone's excited because you now receive, imagine right now, you receive this cold metal briefcase, but it warms your heart so much because you know your life has just been changed. What will you do with $100 million? Don't raise your comment cards. Um, every single one of you, $100 million. Seriously, you get it. And you go home with a briefcase. Some of you are super excited because you're married and you just doubled uh, your money, okay? 100 million times two. Some of you are excited. You're coming here as a family. You got your kids here and so you, times whatever. So you go home with $100 million each in a briefcase. Now you have an option. What are you going to do? There's several responses that you will do and you will go through in your mind. First response, of course, you're paying off your house and your car and you know, all your bills. You're, you're, you're debt-free. Debt-free. Some of you can't imagine being debt-free. That right there would be the greatest gift. But there's more. You have so much money that now you look and you say, I've got money to invest. I'm going to invest in something. I'm not just going to blow it like these lottery winners that in a couple years I'm bankrupt. You're going to invest it. Your life has been completely changed, and you have more than you need. What are you going to do? That's the first question I have for you. Second question is, well, this is a great gift. So how do you respond to Warren Buffett? Some of you might go to his door, knock on his door. He opens up the door, yes, and you say, well, I'm, I'm here. Okay. Why are you here? Well, I'm here to... to pay you back. Uh, do you have a lawnmower? Uh, does your house need painting? I'll clean your house. I guess I'm your servant for the rest of my life. I guess I have to earn, I will never, even at maximum wage, be able to earn $100 million back by working for you if I work today through the rest of my life. So what do you need me to do? Others of you will go to his house and say, oh my word, are you kidding me? Is this for real? Give him a huge hug. He says, it's okay. Um, and you just thank you, thank you, thank you. And he says, hey, it's great. I had, I had more than enough. So go live a happy life. 
The question is, in your responses to a debt you'll never be able to pay, many of us look at saying, okay, now how do I have to work this off? Paul says it's not necessary because you're not a slave. You're an heir. And it, you're not just simply an heir as a child waiting for the parent to die so you can get the inheritance. He says you are a mature child, a huios. A mature child, and now is the time. The time is set as now to inherit the kingdom of God, which is much greater than $100 million. So how do you live your life like you're paid for? Do you live as a slave who says, oh, great, I got to do this now, and I got to do that now? Or do you live your life saying, I, I get to do whatever I want. And because I've truly experienced what love is, greater love hath no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus says, I, now I no longer call you my friends, but I call you my children. So as a child of God, I want you to ponder this today. As you ponder the difference between keeping the regulations and having a relationship, realize that God came in and gave you 144,000 of those briefcases. How are you going to live like you're paid for? And if you really want to understand what this is all about, I invite you to come back next week because we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. Get here early so you get a seat. Isn't it amazing what God is doing? And isn't it great to live like you're paid for? I just hope you have the most amazing week this week, understanding how much God has already done for you and how much he just wants to do for everyone in your path. I sure hope you'll find something to be able to share with someone this week about how loving God is, how incredible he is. And I sure hope to be able to see you face to face sometime. If you are in the Loma Linda area, please let us know on our website. Please utilize our new reservations form on the contact page of the website. Let us know who's coming, how many are coming, because I'm telling you, something's happened in the last couple of months where we've just exploded and we just don't have enough seats for everyone. And we don't want you standing. We don't want you sitting on the stage. We want to treat you like royalty. So make sure you communicate with us when you're going to be there. And we can't wait to see you face to face and to go on this journey and have this conversation with you. Until then, we invite you to come back next week for episode two when we find out more about what God wants. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats and the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.